Cayman Nature, a journey in search of a peaceful and prosperous society with human nature as a guide. Led by your host, Adam Heyman. Hello, Tyrone. How are you doing? Hey, what's up, buddy? Doing great, man. Good to see you again. I am uh, pleased as punch. I don't know if you can see from the smile on my face, but as you well know, I just recorded my first uh, interview episode with the great Stefan Kinsella, and I thought it would be a great idea since he threw about 58 highly complex topics at the listener all at once uh, that maybe you and I could have a discussion where we unpack all of that and I get your reactions on the conversation and maybe we clarify a few things and maybe dive in a little deeper. Yeah, I thought it was an it was an awesome interview. I just watched it myself. A nice work on that. Stephen Gonzella is a personal hero of mine. He um he he's uh, directly uh, influenced my my philosophical way of thinking about many topics. So I was super excited when you told me that you were going to be interviewing Stefan as your very first uh interview guest on the show. So I, I think that's great. However, like you said, you packed a lot of stuff into that one hour interview. And I think for, for people like you and me who are well-versed in this type of uh, material, um, I, I didn't really have any questions. There wasn't a whole, whole lot uh, that, that I didn't understand, but thinking about it perhaps from a more lay person, or if this is your first time coming at this material, there might've been some scary terms in there, like scarcity and evenly rotating economy and, 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 and intuitionism and, and stuff like that. So, so there's a lot to unpack that I think you didn't have time to get into in more detail uh, during your interview. So for, for the sake of those um, who just listened or watched uh, the, the interview, I, I think we could, we could spend a little, little bit of time parsing through through some of the, those terms so so um you know to begin with you guys talk about scarcity sort of right off the bat so why don't you clarify the uh idea of what scarcity means in the sense that you were talking about yeah well it's a very important economic concept obviously um the whole field is is devoted to how we humans use uh, scarce resources to satisfy our infinite needs. And then what Stefan was talking about is you know, property rights frameworks by which we um, establish who has control over various resources. Um, and the reason scarcity is important, he brought it up in a couple different contexts, but one of them was intellectual property. And it was important to recognize that physical things that only one person can, you know, own and direct, or maybe a group in a, you know, under a contract basis, those things are scarce things, you know, like capital goods and food in your house and your clothes and a road even, or a factory. And it's just a, an important distinction he was making between actual physical things that exist in the universe that are scarce bricks and potatoes and, whatnot and ideas which by their very nature are not scarce i can have it in my head and as soon as i tell it to you i haven't lost it it's only it's only gained you've gained that idea and i've lost nothing except maybe that you now know something horrible about me depending on what i said <laughs> oh and i know all the horrible things all so. the things <laughs> so scarcity is just a, a critical concept in a lot of different uh, intellectual arenas and 
I know Stefan talked in great detail about um, some of the higher order uh, effects of scarcity. Um, but yeah, I wanted to say something a little bit more, a little bit more clear. Yeah. So I think the key point here is, and, and this is something that once you get it, you get it, but, but it does take sort of that light bulb moment or, or, or a little bit of time for, for these concepts to sink in. So if you're new to, um, economics in general, but in particular, the Austro-Libertarian School of Economics. They use terms that are common in the English language, but for very specific alternate meanings. meanings. What I mean by that, to make it perhaps less clear, uh, (laughs) is that in common parlance, just everyday when when you're out and about speaking with people, you use things like scarce resources. So in that sense, people think of them as there's only uh, they're rare. So I think I think people equate scarcity with rarity, and that is not what we mean when we're speaking in economic terms. For sure. In economic terms, everything is scarce. Yep. Everything. So you go to the grocery store and you say, "Well, what do you mean? Coca-Cola isn't scarce. There's a million cans of, of coke in, in on the shelf it's a it's scarce in the sense that a can of coke can only be drunk by one one person at a time so you and i can't drink the same can of coke at the same time so in that way it's a scarce resource or it's a scarce item it's a pretty big uh, supermarket you just referenced with that million cans of coke right just goes to show that even with that number right right there's eight billion people on the planet not everybody gets a coke (laughs) right so so the idea is it's not that it's rare right it's that it can only be used by one person at a time unlike the contrast to that an idea right which can be used by multiple people simultaneously so i the the example um i've heard kinsella use many times before in, in his other shows that suppose we we both want to for example my wife and i we only have one car we, we 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 just have one car so both of us can't use the car at the same time it's a scarce resource there's billions of cars in the world but our car the one we own can only be used by one of us at a time so and interestingly scarce. yeah for sure and interestingly as you'll see in the first chapter of any economics textbook worth its salt is that concept of scarcity exists even if there's only one person in the universe right if you're alone on the desert island and you got five you know i don't know bottles of water or whatever you can't use each bottle for anything but one thing you know you can't use the same amount of water that you use to drink to also clean your fish or i don't know i don't know what you use bottles of water for (laughs) but the point being that you have to decide where to allocate your scarce resources because you you have infinite again infinite desires for things to do with bottles of water and you only have x number of them right and also um scarcity applies to time so even though time isn't something you can physically hold in your hand like a bottle of water time is scarce you you can only take so many actions at, at one time i can't drink uh, a, a bottle of water and a bottle of beer at the same time I, yes you I, can I actually to... i did that okay. once in, uh, in, in okay, college well. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right you got one of those hats with two straws <laughs> exactly. and one with water and one with beer 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're making me bang my my microphone here. Okay, that was that was funny, but you you get the point, right? You you, you can time is scarce. Every physical material object in the universe is scarce in the sense that something can only be used or an action can only be taken upon it one individually, one, one at a time, not not simultaneously, as opposed to thoughts and ideas that that are infinitely uh, copyable. That's now, exactly right. Um, I wanted to quickly transfer that topic because you also used it in the context of argumentation ethics okay because it's right at the foundation mm -hmm. assuming we're not fighting assuming we've decided uh, that we're going to solve our problems through talking and persuasion rather than stick stones and nuclear warheads then we each have to have a body with which to make an argument and a space with within which to stand to project our voices and so it underscores the fact that we have to take as an axiom that we own our own bodies and at least a little bit of space to exist in because uh, otherwise I have to fight you for yours. Right. So part of the, part of the uh, um, initial starting conditions that are necessary for having a discussion an argument is a basic understanding and acceptance of property rights. And once you accept that it's the, whatever the opposite of poison is poison pill that, that from which the, the corpus of libertarian property rights theory uh, naturally uh, uh, is rolled out, is spun out. And it's a critical concept. It's a key concept. It's a brilliant concept. And uh, it was great to hear Stefan Kinsella talk about it deeply and philosophically. So I, I, and I can't emphasize this point enough. Yeah, people admit, why are they talking about scarcity and this economics thing or, or whatever? It's because it's the key to the, entire libertarian ethical philosophy that you and I subscribe to. Um, as uh, as Stefan said, we all use the non-aggression principle as a shorthand. But mm -hmm. what that's a shorthand for is a proper libertarian understanding of what property rights are. Right. Because that is the key to help you decide conflicts over, again, scarce resources. And because that's a, not a... Uh, it's not an automatic thing to figure out. You know, you can be confused about who owns what and why they should be owning it. And it, that's why it's so important to develop a, a robust, vibrant theory of property rights. And, and Stefan Kinsella has done a lot to, to articulate that. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think if I could sum it up in, in one sentence to maybe my friend, I'm going to a birthday party later this afternoon with an old college uh, buddy. Um, he doesn't know much about politics or philosophy. It's not, not really his thing. And if, and sometimes we'll get into conversations like this and, and I try to just come up with sort of like, how can I say this as simply and quickly as possible just to, to really make it clear. And, and one thing I'll say is you can't have peace without property rights. The whole point of property rights is not because I'm, I'm an evil capitalist and I want to hoard all the world's resources for myself. <laughs> It's because I don't like violence. I don't like war. I don't like conflict. And property rights helps us have a clear demarcation line of, of where we where we where where we we can avoid conflict. So I, I think that's why we spend so much time talking about Robinson Crusoe and scarcity, and and then it get it it, it gets to the the idea of property rights. So. Yeah, you need a coherent theory because otherwise it's uh, you say you own that, and I say, well, I got a different idea. Let me float this one past you. How about I own that? And then you're just fighting. It's exactly right. right what you said. You need a 
a fair, just, coherent, and robust theory of property rights, or all we're doing is fighting each other. And uh, yep. I think we do that so, a little bit too much already. Yeah, hu human beings have two choices to, to, live, to live in a society. You can fight or cooperate. That's it. Yep. Yep. If you're going to cooperate and, and you want peace, now not everybody wants peace. Some people want war and like war and like fighting. Okay. But if you like peace, so I think Kinsella will call it a since then argument to avoid the is ought gap, gap problem. And we'll 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 get into that a little bit, bit here in a minute. But but if you value peace, then the best way to accomplish that is, is through property rights. But before before we even dive into that a, a little bit more, again, I want to sort of clarify some of these terms that you and Stefan sort of sort of just threw out there and sort of flew by it rather quickly. And again, for the person who isn't used to this type of stuff, they're like, what? Evenly rotating economy? Whoa, what's that? So can, can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. I was horrified when he when he broached that subject. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, how much time are we going to have to take to explain that? But yeah, I forget who came up with it. I first read the concept in uh, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, but I think Stefan Kinsella mentioned that Mises came up with it, and maybe it was even before him. Um, but it's a mental construct by which an economist can try and isolate certain variables in the economy and simplify the economy uh, in order to illustrate a certain principle. In this case, I believe it's where the money for interest comes from right. and and how the owner of capital goods uh, receives their share of, of, of production income and why. So they abstract away um, from the economy all the things that make it fun and interesting, like variable supply, variable demand. Uh, all information is assumed to be infinitely known. And so you abstract away all the, oh, and nothing ever changes. No one is born. Right. Nobody dies. The economy is perfectly static. Each period is just like the last one, mm -hmm. and all information that would normally be the most important thing in an economy is assumed to be perfectly known by everybody. And in that setting, we can we can detail the cash flows and the investment and production decisions and consumption decisions, and actually parse out how each member uh, of the of the production system, you know, labor, uh, uh, capital, land. All of these things receive their due portion, and and it, it spotlights exactly where interest comes from. Yeah, that's right. Um, and capital returns. Yeah, uh, you know, this just goes to show how much of a nerd I am. But I'm I'm part of a sort of a libertarian book club, and we're actually reading through Man, Economy, and State nice. uh, currently. So, uh, so the evenly rotating economy is kind of fresh in my mind. So when you guys brought that up, I was like, Oh, okay, great, cool. I totally understand that now. Well, not really. I mean, I'm not that smart. And Rothbard's uh, uh, books are, are, are pretty dense, but in essence, it, it's what you said. The, the, the whole the whole point of it was it's it's uh, just a mental experiment. You know what do you call those? Sort of like um, yeah, it's a model where you abstract away yeah all the other variables that complicate the model. Right, uh, and 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 uh, he was really just trying to point out. Um, the usage of time preference and how that creates interest. So right. I produce something today. If I hold on to it for a year and, and then sell it, I can sell it for a higher price than if I sell it uh, today uh, because uh, um, you, you may, I want the money sooner than I want it later. 
So that difference in holding it versus selling it at a future time is what interest is. This is the literal definition of interest, at least in the Austrian school of, of economics. Other that's for sure true and i want to stop you right there and keep it simple because otherwise yeah. bob murphy is going to teleport into this uh, <laughs> recording and explain to us all the incredible complexities and ambiguities <laughs> right. about the pure right. theory of time preference and nobody has time for that okay right right, right. sorry sorry uh, forget all that forget all that uh, read man economy say <laughs> yes it's highly that. recommended i read it 20 years ago i think and uh it's a it's a magnificent book yeah, so uh, we're about to start power and market. We, we're our our next meeting is uh, chapter twelve, man, economy, state. Not that anybody cares about this, but that's the end of that, and then it goes goes on to the next section. So I'm, I'm excited because I've never read power and market, so I'm Ooh, excited to, to dive into that. So maybe we can talk about that more, and I, you can pick your brain about some of the, the things I find there. Okay. So so we've talked about scarcity as an economic term, evenly rotating economy as an economic term. Um, the other term um, that you kind of brought up was this uh, idea of moral intuitionism, not original to the philosopher Michael Humer, but obviously Michael Humer is popular in libertarian circles because I think it would be fair to say he would consider himself to be a libertarian philosopher if you if you want to yeah. call it that. So just real briefly, you want to explain a little bit more deeply what this intuitionism is. Oh, now you got me on the spot. Um, <laughs> hey, you're the one who said it. You read his books. So. No, I did. I did. But, <laughs> but they are dense. Um, a lot of philosophers throughout time will try and come up with these complex justifications for our moral and ethical uh, beliefs. And I think mo uh, there's no way he would he would sign off on my characterization ah, of him. But I think. We'll have him on. I think what he sees there is just a bunch of mental masturbation that's all a bunch of pseudo-logical nonsense. They're trying to find these... I think a lot of philosophers think they're mathematicians, and so they're trying to find firm, axiomatic foundations like you know Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And then, mm -hmm. and then they make a mistake there and, and build a shaky foundation and then try to build an edifice of, of, of philosophical thought and moral thought that is all screwed up because you screwed up right at the beginning. And so I think intuitionism is the recognition that all of those um, puber logical, mental, mathematical structures in philosophy are false. The way we discover moral truths in actual real life is through intuition. And it's not perfect. It's not, you know, completely objectively provable like geometry is, but that doesn't matter. We can't reject it because that is what, that's all we have in the same way that our senses are fallible. Sometimes we hallucinate, but you can't therefore say that we know nothing. We have knowledge. Our senses do provide us knowledge. Um, it's just fallible. We have to figure our way through it. And the intuition, the core, uh, it's a pretty good allegory to intuitionism because it's, it's very similar. We have intuitions about what's right and wrong and they're not perfect. They are subject to context and culture, but that doesn't mean there's nothing there. There's signal, even though there's noise. And I think he, in the book, Ethical Intuitionism, he tears apart the other approaches and then explores how valuable the intuitionist approach is, even though it's not something you can, you know, Aristotle wouldn't be satisfied with the proof, I don't think, or, right. or Descartes or someone like that. 
and uh, I apologize, Michael Humor. I think greatly of you. I probably just butchered your your whole book, but uh, I, I enjoyed reading it. No, I I think that's essentially right. Um, not not to go down this path too much, but um, you you briefly discussed also Hume's Isot gap problem. Now, this isn't original to Hume. This is something philosophers have been arguing about since since the days of Zeno, um, but it, it, it is sent and, and it's essentially why you know Aristotle wrote books on um, physics but but no one in university physics department studies Aristotle's physics today anymore what well why is that well because physics being a hard science can be proved disproved tested hypothesized philosophy is not that way and 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 philosophy so people still do study Aristotle in philosophy classes because, these are not questions that have exactly um, falsifiable answers per se. Um, and uh, and um, where was I going with that? Give me one second. I'll regain my, my thought here. Well, you're asking, I mean, you're talking about the is hot gap and. Oh well, yeah. And, you know, I get his point. You can't in this, again, it goes back to that desire for philosophers to think they're physicists and mathematicians. They want to be able to point at a, a way the structure of the universe is and right. say, therefore, uh, right. a, a policy prescription, a morality framework pops out of that. And Hume and people like him say, well, that's just ridiculous. I can't, I can't have a, a mathematical structure, a logical structure based upon the way the universe is. Therefore, I cannot have an ought, a, a value system based upon that. And I get his point. But I think he's wrong. He's making the same error in insisting that if we don't have perfect logical knowledge in the way a mathematician does, then we have no knowledge. And I just think that's nonsense. If you have an ethos where every time a baby is born, you eat that baby, that is worse for your society than if you instead have an ethos, a value system by which you raise that baby and make him a productive, productive member of your society. And even though our, our intuitions about morality aren't, aren't perfect, they're fallible, they do provide a direction. Even if we don't know exactly what we're pointing to, we know it's not behind us where cannibalism lies. I mean, there are some things that are, I hate to use the word objectively, but there are some things that are objectively bad for us as a species in this environment and some things that are objectively good. And we don't know all the things. But there is a directional signal there, and I think Hume and other philosophers like him because they were only interested in the logical proofs. I think they screwed that up. I think they made a mistake. So I was a philosophy major in college, so that probably that probably screwed me up more than more than any goddamn thing in the world. I wasn't but, a major, but I took a lot of philosophy classes, and I was but, bewildered, bewildered but, by them. Yeah. So so. If you if you don't mind, indulge me just here here for a second. Sure. Here, here here's why I'm I'm going to agree with Hume. Now I don't agree with Hume on any of his other things. So Hume was a complete Platonist. He did not think that this world was real. He did not think uh, it was possible to know anything. So Plato's um, uh, very famous statement: "The only thing I know is that I know nothing." <clears throat> would have applied to Hume. He says, "You know, we're this is all fantasy world." It, it, we're living in a dream or it's an illusion or, or whatever. Okay, fine, whatever. Put put all that aside. <clears throat> his 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 is gap is a is is perhaps a technical 
issue. So I think I think what you're getting at by saying, you know, there's certain things that are objectively good for human society and objectively bad for human society. These are this is sort of more of again the way generally we would just speak in conversation. So we when we, we when we speak in conversation about scarcity, most people think rarity. When people think about um, norms, they're thinking generally in terms of overall goodness and badness. But the point, the fine philosophical point that is being made is when you say something like there are objectively things that are good for human society, that good, the adjective you're using there, that good, that normative good is actually a subjective normative term because there's no such thing as good and bad. Good and bad is just crap we make up. So every society in different times throughout history can have a different view of what is good and bad. And so I could, you, you, you might say something like it's, it's, if we bear children and then just eat them, that's bad for your sight. Well, it may not be. In fact, you know, there's evidence that cavemen 100,000 years ago committed infanticide all the time because they didn't have enough food to feed everybody. So it's actually better for their society at the time to kill the child. So it, it, from, from a survival perspective. So all human saying is good and bad is not something that, that can be objectively uh, determined. And, and what I going back to my friend who uh, going to his birthday party who, you know, not not a philosophical thinker. The way the way I try to explain would explain the isot gap problem is you can't point at a tree and say there's a tree, therefore murder is wrong. You can't go from an is the tree is the tree exists to an ought. So so that that's what's meant by the isot gap problem. And and to me, I actually think um when, when i when, when it finally kind of clicked for me and i, and I kind of switched over to that because i used to be a randian objectivist and i used to argue yes there's objective morality i don't know you can point to it or something <laughs> i don't know but um it actually it actually then made me think more more about freedom and libertarianism in the fact that well that means we we are free completely free to come up with our own moral frameworks Versus someone who uh, you were free before, you just weren't free to force it on anybody else. Yeah, but but as opposed to being dogmatically tied to say like a religious, where where just the, this deity says this is right, this is wrong, you have no choice over them. Well, hey, maybe just part of the objective right. moral order is that uh, dogmatism is uh, is wrong. It's bad for our bad for our nature. Yeah. So let me push back. I mean, I think you've explained the isot gap. Uh, yeah, pretty yeah. good. Just let me push back against it. There has to be some signal in the noise to the hypothetical experiment that if you took every healthy, happy, 20-year-old human on this planet looking forward to their future, and you asked them, how would you like one of, pick between one of two choices? I'm going to let you go, and you can go ahead and live your, your happy, healthy life. Or I'm going to torture you to death over the course of a couple of weeks. And 100% of those people are going to choose one answer over the other. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a signal there. There's something inherently objectively good about one of those choices and bad about the other. So again, just because you can't make a mathematical proof out of it, there is a tree. Therefore, this um, social order 
I, I do think there are there we human beings have a nature. The universe that we live in, this planet has you know, has a nature and a characteristics, and some activities and behaviors and norms are better than others, which doesn't mean that we can just sit there in our bedroom and write it all down, you know, in the same way that a, a mathematician could formulate a proof or something. But there is something there. And I think you mentioned earlier that I think I think Stefan Kinsella mentioned it too. We try and sidestep that um, by making a since then argument. That's right. And I think, I th yeah, I think when you're doing that, you're doing the exact same thing. I am. You're just, you're just making up a move in between, but we all know what we mean by the sense it's since we value human flourishing, then right. we want libertarianism and property the, rights. The and I just think we should quit, quit pretending that one of those things isn't better than the other. Sure. Except that the difference is that yeah, it's not universalizable. <clears throat> So in order for that's true, a, but that's not a defect. Again, this isn't a mathematical proof. It's not sure. universalizable. You're right. If we encountered sentient life on another planet that was organized the way bees were or something, our, our moral system wouldn't apply to them. It's not objective like that, but that doesn't well, mean it's not real. Right, right, right. It, but it's not even universalizable among humans. So because there are people that, crave and desire misery and pain and suffering those are the things that they value so for those people call them psychopaths sociopaths whatever you want to call them yes a small percentage of the population but they do exist there are people that are into sadomasochism or just total you know take over the world and rape pillage and murder for them that's what they want that's what they like. That's what the, that's what that's what makes them happy. So their morality would be completely different. Sure, from but ours. we don't. So, but we don't so, create moral rules based on the psychopaths. In the same way that if, if a person if a person was born with three arms tomorrow from a birth defect, we don't throw out the statement that humans have two arms. The psychopath and sociopath are, are birth defects. They're 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 errors. We don't create social norms and systems from uh, uh lifeboat scenarios and we don't do it from psychopathy and we don't do it from birth defects either again it's not a it's not a mathematical logical structure which that's purely definable and provable but right. again if 98 percent of us value peace and property rights we don't obliterate that social order for the two percent that are psychopaths 100 percent agree with you i but the technical philosophical point being made between the is odd gap is if you cannot say something is 100%, it's not objective, it's subjective, and therefore you can't, you can't bridge the gap from is to odd. So what Hoppe and Kinsella do is say, okay, forget all that. We, we, we got you, Hume. You're right. We can't go from an is to an ought. There's always that 1% of the population that's just not going to be for peace and prosperity and love. And they're going to want war and destruction and, and human misery and suffering or someone that wants to kill themselves, commit suicide rather than, than live. You can't tell a person that wants to commit themselves. You're, that's wrong. You're morally wrong for doing it. I wouldn't it, try. It, it, it's, it's up to I them. I wouldn't try. They own their own body. I mean, right. that's, not so, a, that's, that's not a so violation. The, Right. So the best we can do then is to say what you're saying and what Kinsella says. Okay, forget all that. Let's just take this, this let, let, let's, let's start at step two and just say, if we value peace and prosperity, then this is, but it's the if, it's a hypothetical, it's a conditional statement. 
not an objective statement. So that's really just what the is our gap is about. And, and, and it, again, it's, it's, it's more uh, of a philosophical technical argument, but if you're going to get into arguments, philosophical arguments, you, you, you need to understand that language. You need to understand that the arguments and, and have some sort of retort or comeback for to sure. It. I think, and, uh, and, and the comeback is to skip the step and just say, since then, and move on and move on a, with your life. I think Tyrone, you've done a really good job of delineating that uh, difference, and I don't think we're going to solve it. But I do recommend highly that people check out Michael Humer's work. Maybe we'll throw a couple links in the show notes or the description. Hundred percent. I definitely need to get more into his stuff. I've only watched a few of his videos online. He does a lot of courses online that you can watch for free. Hell yeah. Philosophy courses from his lectures and stuff that are really great. But I have not read any of his books. I if you just want to focus on uh, very very solid uh, arguments in favor of of liberty, and he takes up all the other arguments throughout history against it, uh, the problem of political authority by Michael Humer is where you want to go. And if you want to delve into more generalizable his discussion of ethical intuitionism i think the book is titled exactly that ethical intuitionism and yep and they're both mm -hmm. very good i i want before we move on to the intellectual property thing i do i do want to get your thoughts on this this one ethical sort of question that i have failed to come up with the answer myself and I don't think libertarianism in general has a good answer. <clears throat> and and sometimes the answer is just look, it is what it is, and we just have to accept it and move on. But that's that's wholly un, unsatisfying to a, a lot of people, to, 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 to most to most everyone, I, I would say. And, and so it seems that <clears throat> if 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 we're gonna say that this is a gap problem exists, um are we left with just might makes right at, at the end of the day? Because at some point, 200,000 years ago, one group of cave people killed another group of cave people, took their cave, took their stuff, stuff and whatever. And ever since then, we've now lived 200,000 years later, nothing that anybody owns, we could trace back to the rightful uh, owner, the first homesteader of the original property because it was stolen from, from time immemorial. So what, how do you address things like, well, what about the Native Americans? It's, did all the land be given back to the tribes that still exist today? Well, you know, what about the, 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 the Hamas-Israel conflict that's going on right now? Wh whose land is it? I mean, how far back do you go? Because as far back as you go, I can go one step further and say, well, are you, somebody stole it from them, you know? So... Do we just say there's some sort of statute of limitations that we just have to reasonably cut off a line in 1967? That was it. 1948. Well, there is. A, I mean, you know, what, what's what's your thoughts on that? Um, well, my thoughts are this is a double episode uh, sort of topic all by itself. Um, <laughs> but in principle, there's a couple of there are a couple of principles you can apply to this situation. One is that there is no statute of limitations on a theft. Um, but the reason most people act as if there is a statute of limitations is because of a couple other principles. One, the further back in antiquity you go, the harder it is to actually trace property titles in a, in a coherent way. Right. And another principle, I'm not even sure if this is libertarianism, 
but I don't think you'll find too many people um, objecting. Even if the land was stolen, you know, it's clearly an original crime. After a couple of centuries, you know, all of those buildings that we've added to Manhattan, you know, we're not going to give back to any Native Americans just because of that accumulation. You know, we've, we've done something here to sink our our blood, sweat, and tears in. And so if you were just to hand all that back, it would be, it would be ridiculous. And I don't even know what principle that is, but there's something there. Like, I don't believe that the state of Israel was created in an ethical way. However, I think it would be kind of goofy to hand over the city of Tel Aviv and all the buildings and improvements in it back to uh, the Palestinians, because that would be a form of injustice too. So you have to seek some other um, sort of resolution and the other principle and again i hope we make an episode on this only someday in the future because there's a million different uh examples and principles to apply um the other one you mentioned is you know should america give all all of america back to the indians because some of it was taken in conquest and there are stronger land claims than others you know specific tribes that have existed in a particular place blah 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 but the one thing I wanted to mention is the principle of homesteading. It's not the case that just because there was nobody but Native Americans here when the first European settler arrived, that in a Rothbardian or even Lockean way, they had homesteaded the whole continent. That's not the case. You know, just because you wake up in the morning and yawn and stretch your arms and look out at the horizon, you know, everywhere, doesn't mean you own all of that. Homesteading has specific you know, you have to actually fence off the land and do something, and even more than that, do something with it. You don't own something just because 20 years ago your family took a walk over there and then you came back, but you own all that land because you were there before. You know, homesteading isn't isn't all or nothing. It isn't one for one. You homestead specific aspects of a piece of property in the same way that the, the classic example is the airport one. You know, if you had a house and somebody builds an airport right next to you, and then all of a sudden they're giving you noise and uh, and uh, blocking your visibility, you know, pollution. You homesteaded that view, you know, but it's not the other way around. Like if the airport was there first and then you move next door and started complaining about the noise, well, they homesteaded the right to emit all that noise because they were there first. So it, it's not just a, because they were there, they own the whole continent is the only thing I'm trying to, to say. Yeah. It's more It's more intricate than that. Yeah, and I mean, I think just in philosophy, as we kind of point pointed to, uh, the reason why we still study Aristotle is because these questions just don't have answers sometimes. And as unsatisfying as it is to say, well, a bunch of people conquered a few things, some land a few hundred years ago. Now we've built some buildings on it. Now it's ours. It, it, it yeah, that, that 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 that's right. I mean, it's really the only way we can sort of go on with society. But it, you know, it does feel unsatisfying to, to just I want say to briefly say something about the uh, about the unanswerable questions mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of confusion there not necessarily in your head but in the heads of a lot of people sure I think the proper way to analyze things from a philosophical view is to deduce correct principles and then apply them to particular contexts and that can be hard to do but just because that's hard to do doesn't mean the principle is necessarily wrong. It means context always matters, and context is tricky. Yeah, so I think I think let's turn this into another episode because I, I, 
I'm about to go down the Walter Blockian path of you know the grandfather's yep. wristwatch story, but yeah, but let's 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 move on. We're we're already <laughs> we're already getting up on. We really haven't even talked about intellectual property, which 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 was the real mind blowing thing to me uh, when I first sort of read Kinsella stuff and, and and listened to him speak. So how, however long, how many years ago that was, but it was definitely late in my libertarian philosophy. Like I said, I was mostly probably closer to an objectivist and, and ran was, you know, I went through that. I went through that phase. Yeah. yeah I mean, all but, uh, you know, she was hardcore copyright and, and intellectual property and, and things like that. And so I, I was just like, well, yeah, of course that, that makes sense. And, and then Kinsella just, just blew that away. And I'm like, Oh, uh, so obvious. Sometimes you feel kind of stupid once once an idea kind of clicks. Like how how could I I have I have believed that this whole time? But but I think never, it's what never like, feel stupid. I mean, we yeah. all none of us came out of the womb, you know, knowing everything. And Ayn Rand, by the way, is brilliant. Oh yeah, she 100%. wasn't right about absolutely everything, right. but I I don't disagree with her general approach. Again, she's a system builder based on uh, the concept of natural rights in the same way that Murray Rothbard. And I think that's a noble endeavor. That's part of the project I'm working on in my own small way. And she was just wrong about some stuff, you yep. know. Uh, tap dancing isn't the objectively best form of, <laughs> of dance. And tiddly, what you call it, the tiddlywink music, tiddly that's wink not music. the objectively <laughs> best form of music. And she was wrong about property rights. But I was wrong for, yeah. uh, again, as I mentioned in the interview with Stefan, um, I highly recommend you read not only his book against uh, intellectual property, um, but also that companion piece we talked about a lot against intellectual monopoly. And once you do, you'll have your, um, you might not have your mind changed, but it will be blown in very good ways. And um, one thing I didn't get into in the episode with Stefan um, is I wanted to point out that although um, copyright and patent would not exist in a libertarian legal order, um, any protections you got along those lines would have to be contractual, not uh, legislative. Right. Um, the one area where it would look almost identical is trademark. Um, you still would not be able to open up a burger joint and call it McDonald's and make it look like a McDonald's and not get into trouble. The difference is it won't be the McDonald's corporation that has an action against you. It'll be every person who walked into your joint thinking they were getting a McDonald's because you're committing a, a form of fraud on the customer. Mm -hmm. You can't just go in and pretend to be somebody else and not think you're committing a harm. The error is in calling that a, an intellectual property violation rather than a fraud violation. And yeah. I think Stefan would back me up on, on that distinction. That, that That's an interesting one. I, you know, trademark. Hmm. I I'm, I'm so hesitant to, go down that road a little bit but but i mean in in general i i agree with you uh i i i'll, I'll have to think about that one some more but i but i think the key point for me and i don't think stefan or you actually said this in the interview but i've heard him say this before and this is one of the reasons why i sort of really switched my view of it along with the logicalness of the scarcity issue so you can only use a car one person at a time but uh, a cookie recipe can be used by, by many people at the same time. So ideas aren't scarce. And the reason, the reason why Stephen Kinsella is against copyright 
as I understand his argument, copyright and, and patents and things like that, is because it impedes human progress. The only reason I'm a libertarian at all, it's not just because I have this highfalutin, moralistic, philosophical ideas and, and reality be damned. It's because I value peace and prosperity. That's what I want out of the world and life. And I'm a libertarian and a capitalist because I think those are the systems that can best achieve that. And, and Stephen Kinsella makes the point that copyright patents, these hold back um, technological progress advancement. I think uh, you're right, but you're, uh, you're, he would not say that's the reason that these are wrong. He would say that's an ancillary uh, side effect that they, that patents and copyrights hold back human progress, but that's not the reason. The reason is more uh, fundamental property. Intellectual property rights are a violation of real property rights. He would say yeah. that you, if you're sitting here and on your table, you've got uh, two reams of paper and a bottle of ink, you can take those two reams of paper and a bottle of ink and sell them to your neighbor. And because it's your property and that's a, that's a valid exchange. He's saying that if you take that, those reams of paper and bottle of ink and write the first Harry Potter novel on them, nothing has changed such that you cannot take the paper and ink and now sell it to your neighbor again, even though right. it's, you've transformed it into a different form. You're not stealing anything from JK Rowling by doing so. And I know that's super counterintuitive and I used to shout and yell at people who would say that to me, but yep. it is a fundamental truth that if you own the paper and the ink, you can do any goddamn thing you want to it that's peaceful and, and, and sell it to your neighbor. Um, and, and the companion, uh, a book that I just mentioned against intellectual monopoly shows perfectly well that we don't get a lack of innovation. We don't get not enough innovation, whatever that means by abandoning intellectual property. We get the natural amount of innovation. You don't get uh, it twisted and perverted and, the way you might be seeing with the Disney Corporation right now. <laughs> hey, Mickey Mouse is in the, the public domain. So. Only black and white, Mick. No, I know, I know. Just Only Steamboat Willie. But, but <laughs> I'm already starting to see lots of lots of stuff, you know, for sale. <laughs> right. T-shirts and such, you know, just waiting for the waiting for the first one where uh, Mickey's in a sexually compromised. Oh, that's already. That's like already. That. Dude. <laughs> The first innovation of everything is always used for porn. That's right. right. Including this, including things passing into the public realm. Yeah. Well, look, Tyrone, man, you've been jibber jabbering for over 45 minutes and you haven't answered the most fundamental question. How uh -oh. was it? How was my first interview? How did oh, I dude, do, it was buddy? great, man. No, it was, it was smooth. Um, I thought, I thought your questions were well formulated. Um, I think you you gave Stefan um, a good amount of time to to explore the issues as best you can in an hour. Ta ta tackling those two topics is um, always tough, but I think you hit all the right key points. And awesome. uh, I I think because you you can already hear the people seeing hearing about this for the first time, you can already hear the things firing off in in their brains. Like, well, how would how would authors make money? Or, or musicians survive. It's like, okay. Trust me, that, there are answers to those things. That, that's right. That's because a purpose of the show like this is really just to expose people to sort of general ideas and leave it up to them to try to explore that further. Uh, you can you can take it on faith from us that intellectual property is is a bad idea, or go 
figure it out for yourself. But um, no, it was a great interview, man. I, I can't wait to to see who you're gonna have on have on next. So we're we're looking forward. Um, I'm looking forward forward to that. I don't know what 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 did you um, was there a question you wish you had asked, Stefan? Well, like I said earlier, you know, I could talk to that guy and record it for two days straight, and I don't think we'd repeat anything. Um, he recently got onto uh, the National Libertarian Party's um, Judicial Committee, and I kind of wanted to ask him about that. Oh, okay. Um, uh, you know, I'm in the Libertarian Party as right. well, and I don't know. There's a million questions. I mean, he's an interesting guy. Uh, yeah, I'm very proud to say I know him. Um, every time I get together with that guy, it's uh, it's always a very interesting time. So I hope well, people hey, enjoyed if it. He, uh, if he ever goes out to visit you uh, out in Vegas, let me know. I'll fly out and. We'll have a few drinks or, or something. I, I would Hell love to yeah. meet him in person. I've never I've never met him. So. Hell yeah, brother. All right, man. Anything uh, else you want to say or should we wrap this up? No, I think let's wrap this up. Um, so thanks for all those questions. And thank you, everyone listening and watching. And uh, we'll see you again.